Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. For the Wheel podcast today, we are delighted to have with us Dr. Ryan Bud Marr, author of a new book, Seeking God with St. John Henry Newman, just published a few months ago. Dr. Marr is currently the academic dean of Mercy College in Iowa and has also served as the director of the National Institute for Newman Studies and associate editor of the Newman Studies Journal. So welcome. We are so glad to have you with us, Dr. Marr. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor. I'm, I'd like to begin by noting that this is actually not your first book on John Henry Newman. You previously authored a monograph entitled, To Be Perfect is to Have Changed Often, The Development of John Henry Newman's Ecclesiological Outlook. So please tell us about the genesis of this second book that you published only about two years later. What drove you to write about Newman again, and how is this book different from the first one? So I've dedicated so much of my study to John Henry Newman because he played an influential role in my own becoming Catholic. So I was raised evangelical Protestant. And in that spiritual journey, especially as I grew, you know, really close to the Catholic Church, it was Newman's writings and thought that really uh, pushed me over the edge, um, so to speak. And so when I went off to do graduate studies at St. Louis University, I wanted to pick a topic that I was personally vested in. And so I landed on Newman. And that book that you mentioned, uh, To Be Perfect is to Have Changed Often, that was the product of my graduate studies. So my dissertation turned into the book. That one is very academic. I hope I had some good things to say, but it's mainly good good to, um, to reach for if you're looking for help getting to sleep at night. Um, no, I mean, it's, that one's, that one's academic, you know, a lot of footnotes and everything like that. This one, Seeking God with St. John Henry Newman, it's meant to be accessible. And so, you know, Newman, he's just a great spiritual thinker, so many rich thoughts there. But I, I think for a lot of folks, when they turn to his works, it's hard to know where to begin to start. He wrote so much. And some of what he wrote is very heavy sledding. So you think of a book like The Grammar of the Scent. It's really speculative philosophy. And I think if someone just picked that one up and said, I'm going to learn about Newman by reading this, they might be turned away. And so what I wanted to do was to mine the entirety of what he wrote and to draw out insights that could change a person's life or help someone to grow in holiness. And then, you know, sort of do the work for others to uh, mine some of what Newman had to say. Wow. Thank you so much. That actually fits perfectly with one of the questions I was planning to ask. And I was wondering that, you know, you've stated that like Newman, um, you and myself actually entered the Catholic Church as an adult. 
So how were your experiences with Newman as a non-Catholic? And in what ways do you think Newman can be a source of hope and inspiration for non-Catholics and Catholics alike, and specifically college students in today's world? Yeah, so it was a line from one of Newman's books. In fact, one of his most famous books called An Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine that first got me thinking, uh, or I should say first really sparked my interest in his the entirety of his work. And early in that essay, Newman says, um, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And, you know, that's not a very ecumenical thing to say, like in our present context, we're maybe more hesitant to speak in those terms. But um, Newman wasn't just trying to be mean. He thought that, you know, that he was making a specific historical claim. And for him, the deeper you go into the study of history, the more you begin to see the continuity between the apostolic faith and the Catholic faith today. But he did recognize that things look different. Obviously, the 12 disciples didn't pray the rosary. You know, in the earliest documents of the Christian church, we don't see the same devotion maybe to, you know, offering up prayers and sacrifices for our purgatory. Uh, you could go on down the line, you know, <laughs> When St. Paul talks about the real presence, he doesn't mention transformation. But what Newman goes on to show in that essay is that the full flowering of the Catholic faith, the devotions and the doctrines that we have today, those aren't corruptions or falling away from a pristine early reality. They're really developments. His essay is the essay on um, the development of Christian doctrine. So he wants to show how, say, what the church taught at the Council of Trent is the full flowering of the acorn, which is the deposit of faith. And so you've seen um, changes in the sort of like externals, but there's this essential reality that remains the same and is preserved. When I read that line from Newman to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, I knew this was a writer that I couldn't just read that and walk away from. It felt like he was offering a real challenge. And so that pushed me deeper into his work. And it was through his kind of like reading the way that he worked these things out in his own mind that helped me to make sense of a lot of the intellectual struggles that I was having at the time. So, and, and when Newman was named a cardinal in the Catholic Church, he chose as his motto, heart speaks to heart, cor ad cor loquitur, heart speaks to heart. And I think even today, many, many modern people, um, young people, those who are on spiritual journeys, when they encounter Newman's voice in his writings, it really is a, a case of heart speaks to heart. Thank you so much. So in addition to being an undergraduate fellow with the Collegium Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture, I am also involved with our Penn Newman Center, which is actually the country's oldest Newman Center at any American university, something we're rather proud of. But sometimes college students like myself might think that Newman must be pitched to them because of his contributions to intellectual life. But in the book, it seems that you're suggesting that these contributions to philosophy, theology, and the arts might sometimes actually obscure his immense witness to personal holiness. What do you think is most important for university students to take today from Newman's personal life and his journey to holiness and his work? Yeah, Newman had as one of his personal mottos, holiness before peace. And when we first encounter that phrase, it can seem paradoxical because peace is so central to the Christian faith. You know, our Lord said, blessed are the peacemakers. 
and uh, the church is sometimes described as a peaceable kingdom. So in what way would Newman prioritize something over peace? But that phrase, holiness before peace, for him, holiness had to take priority. And there's, well, I'm, I'm thinking of the phrase in the Old Testament about, you know, prophets who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. Newman recognized that peace in the sense of just getting along to get along can turn our eyes away from what's most essential, and that's union with God. And we can only achieve union with God if we're prepared for that encounter. And that's where in, in, in the Catholic faith, especially, you have this idea about, you know, justification that being made right with God. Our spiritual life doesn't stop at that moment. It continues forward. And the rest of life is a movement towards God. And then if at death, we're not still not prepared in some way, we're still uh, clinging to uh, attachments to disordinate pleasures or whatever that happens to be, that there's even purgation after death. I think this is what drove Newman's life. And he's got this powerful prayer. I wish I would have memorized it before um, I brought it up. But um, basically, Newman in this prayer affirms that God has a plan for him. He says, I'm, I'm a link in a chain, in a chain, uh, a connection in a series of events or persons. And God has a plan for my life that he hasn't, you know, that's unique to me. It's not for anyone else. But then in the rest of the prayer, Newman goes on to say, he might take away my friends, my career, my health. You know, he goes through the sort of things that so many of us cling to that make our lives meaningful in some sense. But Newman says, God, you might take away all of those things. And yet I trust you. I trust that you have this plan that my life is about. And regardless of what takes place, um, I, I'm trusting that you know best. But when he says that, when he says, when you know best, he's not thinking in terms of um, like a subjective understanding of happiness, but best in terms of making me in the person, into the person that I'm meant to be. So um, I think in Newman's life, throughout every aspect of his life, you see a real abandonment to divine providence. This fundamental trust that God is leading them to a certain point and that you can miss that if you focus simply on um, external realities, the kind of things that a lot of times affect our mood. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I found a similar thing when reading your book that the books kind of struck a perfect balance between a healthy rebuke of the slothfulness and idolatry and indifference that can pervade our world today and an encouraging message of hope, perseverance, divine love. Were you conscious of striking this balance while writing? And how do you think it reflects Newman's own approach to his ministry? I think I was conscious of that about midway through writing the book. I wrote one of the first chapters I wrote was on the three stages of the spiritual life, the purgative, illuminative and unitive way. So um, several of the saints have talked in these terms. And I noticed in that chapter that I spent a lot of time on the purgative way. And I think that was in part because I was, you know, it was a challenge to myself what I found in Newman there. But I thought midway through the book, like, oh, man, someone might pick this up and think, like, this guy's not probably a fun person to have at a party or something, you know. Because I, I felt like the first half of the book maybe emphasized what Newman calls the harsher side of the gospel, that there are these real demands that Christ places upon our lives and sacrifices that we have to make in order to become holy. And so in later parts of the book, I really tried to 
make sure that I emphasize, well, I mean, a pithy phrase that Newman gives is that gloom is no Christian comfort. That joy is supposed to be a part of Christian life. And really, one of the profound witnesses to be given to the world. Um, for him, I think he found his joy in the vision of what's to come. So another element that I bring out in the book is this kind of like a lot of times in his writing, Newman draws on this platonic idea of like the world being a place of shadows. It was created good, obviously, but there's a way where you can get distracted by the things around you and miss this larger reality. For Newman, like almost the more real, real, that the universe is not like a vast empty space, but that it's populated by angels and saints, and that we're like our calling is to join that chorus, um, even now in worship, but of course, ultimately in the beatific vision. So in the in the latter parts of the books, in the book, I did try to go back to those things that were this raises one another one of my questions. Perhaps you can give us some quick theological insights. You outline at the beginning of the second chapter three pathways to holiness and ultimately to heaven, the purgative way, as you mentioned, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. For those who are maybe unfamiliar with this framework, can you outline what these three ways are and explain why you decided to use them as a sort of framework for the book? Yeah, when you start to really dig into the lives of the saints, and especially those who spent time writing on holiness, um, you know, I think of someone like St. John of the Cross. Uh, I, I really picked this up from Rolf Martin, who's a living theologian and writer. But um, there's this idea, so the goal of the Christian life is that we would achieve, like I said, a kind of union with God, that at the end of time, we would be uh, to use more like Eastern Christian language, be deified, may you know, not this complete identification with God, but that we would meet, be made godlike through our adoptions as as sons and daughters of God. But that doesn't happen overnight. It's a whole process, and this process begins with the purgative way, which is really um, walking a path in which our disordered desires. So, in the Christian life, of course. Desire is not a negative thing. You can sometimes get the impression listening to televangelists that like Christianity is boiled down to like don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. That's not how the Catholic Church approaches things. Our desires are good, but they can become disordered or misdirected. And so the purgative way is really a process of having our desires reordered. And sometimes that does mean having certain things burn away. Of course, any attachment to sin that we have. And then the purgative way then leads into the illuminative way where our, our minds are really transformed or renewed and we begin to see reality as God sees it, leading into the unitive way, which the full expression of that is beatific vision. But of course, there are saints who, um, who became so much like Christ or progressed so far down the path in this lifetime that, you know, you think of someone like St. Francis of Assisi. He bore the marks of Christ's suffering in his own body. And so, I mean, we shouldn't necessarily like short sell what's possible in this world. Now, there can be a misunderstanding that the, the three stages are not necessarily steps like you finish the purgative way and then move completely on to the illuminative way. There is a sort of like, um, like these, these can overlap. And obviously, like the purgative and illuminative in a lot of ways are happening at the same time. Now, I should 
one quick qualification. Newman doesn't use that explicit language as far as I can tell in his own writings. But I think if you have that sort of lens, as you read his sermons and things, it really was something that was operative in how he thought about the spiritual life. Thank you so much. So kind of moving with the purgative aspect of things, self-denial, which you focus on a lot in the beginning of the book, as you mentioned, is a rather unusual and even radical practice in today's age. For those of us who haven't had the opportunity yet to understand its role in Christian life, how would you sum up its importance, Newman's view on the matter, maybe give some first steps people can take to incorporating that into their own lives? Yeah, Newman has an interesting perspective in many of his sermons. He said, you know, like when we think of sin, we often think of like grave matters, you know, the kind of big things that trip you up and would maybe be included in some biography tracing, you know, the person's rebellious stage before they found Christ or whatnot. Newman in his preaching points out quite often that what actually um, what actually causes many to fall off the path is not those grave sins, but what he says is comfort and affluence. They kind of lull us to sleep. We're sort of like, you know, um, we've all heard about like a frog being in a pot of water that's slowly boiled and it doesn't realize that, you know, that the water's heating up over time. It's, it's similar in the spiritual life. And so Newman challenges his listeners to really embrace penance and self-denial as ways of, of, of avoiding that sort of outcome as growing in the faith. Now, um, when we think about these matters, one thing that's absolutely essential is that you don't start, it's just like physical training. You don't start with something that's too heavy, that's either gonna like harm you spiritually or discourage you to the point that like, you know, you walk away from the practice altogether. So Newman's great about this because he gives very practical advice that's concrete and sort of like, I, you know, I think of it as baby steps. So he says, like, um, turn your eyes away from vanities. For us, this would probably be like the time that we spend on social media or, you know, an um, inordinate time, amount of time watching television. Or something. You know, he says, he says, give alms, wake up. Um, at the start of the day, like don't hit the snooze button. He doesn't say snooze button, but dedicate the first fruits of the day to prayer. And for Newman, prayer is so essential. He compares prayer to like, um, he says prayers to the spiritual life, what breathing or oxygen is to the physical life. You just can't make progress towards God without it. And so it can't be an afterthought. It has to be something that you plan and prioritize. But um, all those sorts of things, Newman, Newman doesn't say like start with a hair shirt or, you know, fasting for a whole week at a time. I think he gives things to his listeners that they can really grab a hold of and, and start and hope to a, attain so that they continue. You actually include a quote from him in chapter three that I have written down here that Newman, he succinctly remarks to quote, begin not with the end, but to begin with the beginning. And I was dying to get your thoughts on that quote and how to, what that means for our daily lives and how we can try and begin at the beginning. Yeah, that quote is really rooted in some of my own experience because I remember an important conversation with a spiritual director 
where, um, you know, I was struggling with different things at that time. And in sort of like exasperation, I said, uh, you know, if only I were a monk, this would be a lot easier. <laughs> and I thought, you know, like if I could be out of the world and in a quieter place, et cetera, et cetera. And he was quick to point out to me that God had called me to the vocation of being a husband and father, and that that vocation, providentially ordained, would be the specific means by which I was sanctified. That we deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, if I just had this other kind of life, the spiritual life would be easier. Um, another way that I kind of fall into that temptation is I love the stories of the, the lives of the saints, but I'll read about um, um, the martyrs or stigmatists or whatever and think like, oh, yeah, that's great. That's amazing. If I recall to that, you know, like you kind of get this heroic vision of yourself. Um, but it, it's just false to think that um, we we could be like, it, it, well, I should say it's wrongheaded to start with like the levitation or the martyrdom or whatever. Um, because really our love is proven in the individual moments of an ordinary day. And Newman says the hardest part of religion is just to be regular in it. But we're, we're just deceiving ourselves if we think like, if you're completely cross with your family members or, you know, like you have no control over, um, you know, like you're just completely gluttonous or whatever, we're just self-deceived to then think like, well, if I was presented with martyrdom, it would be different. So we have to begin to see each little moment as an opportunity to grow closer to God. And those will really be the testing ground for whether or not we're truly prepared for some greater sacrifice. Okay, just to wrap up, I have to thank you tremendously for the two books you've already written about St. John Henry Newman, but I have to ask if you can reveal anything to us about any future plans in terms of Newman or other academic endeavors and how people can keep up with what you're doing. Yeah, so um, I do have something in the works with Emmaus Road Publisher. And it's a book specifically on how Newman interprets scripture. So if you dig into his writings, um, like his, his sermons, for instance, are just instance are saturated with references to the Bible. And I'm pretty sure that Newman had like large chunks of the King James version of the Bible memorized. And so the book will really be an in-depth study on how specifically does Newman go about interpreting scripture? What were the interpretive methodologies that he used as he preached, as he wrote? Um, but if folks want to, um, you know, learn more about the work that I'm doing, you can certainly go to our Sunday Visitors website to find this book, Seeking God with St. John Henry Newman. You could also Google The Uncommon Good. Um, I host, co-host a weekly radio show on Iowa Catholic Radio. But by going to Iowa Catholic Radio's website um, or Googling The Uncommon Good, you'll find um, all of the previous episodes that we've done, as well as um, find out how to listen live um, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern time. Thank you so much, Dr. Marr, again, for giving all of us this opportunity to hear more about your book. I hope Everyone goes and gets a copy. I could not recommend it more. And we were so grateful to have you with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lisa. It was really a joy to talk to you and blessings on your own Thank studies you so and everything that's going on in um, Philadelphia. Thank you. 
You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.